One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I am seriously worried that we have a summer of discontent. Four. Seriously, to get into a pub, I would lie in a sleeping bag outside. Three. I am a jelly donut. Two. Can I just say, Muller's corners at the time are very expensive. One. We have liftoff. And another successful blast off. Welcome again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. This is Planet Normal launch number six. Captain's log stardate, lockdown ending. Non-essential shops are opening and pubs and restaurants will soon be trading too. I've broken the habit of an adult lifetime by starting to use an electric razor. Those wet shaved blades just got too expensive. And Alison Pearson, drumroll, <laughs> is booked into a hair salon. So what's it to be? Highlights in a light wave or a post-lockdown Tupney all off? <laughs> Anything. I'm going to be outside the door as they're unlocking. I'm going to fall in and tumble into the arms of my French hairdresser. I don't think I'll be allowed to give him a hug because, you know, he's going to be wearing the full Porton Down mask, visor, rubber gloves. But it's going to be so great to... You're going to be to... like one of those nutters queuing for Wimbledon tickets in a hike tent on the pavement, right? <laughs> I would seriously, to get into a pub, I would lie in a sleeping bag outside. That's how far we've gone. This week, actually, you know, I've splashed out, went mad. You bought your razor. I bought a lead for the puppy because he chewed through it. But but more seriously, I've decided I want to really start buying British now because, you know, we all know we're in a big hole. And one of the most interesting things, Liam, is it's really hard to find stuff that isn't made in China, even things you can't possibly imagine, like Tesco's pine nuts. Mm. Everything's made in China. I think somebody could develop an app which would kind of give you an electric shock every time you tried to buy something that was made in China. What do you think? Good idea. God. I mean, what would the foreign office say, darling? <laughs> so the lockdown's ending. This coming weekend is Super Saturday. The pubs will be open. Mm-hmm. You'll be there. I'll be there. Mm-hmm. We can come back to that. But in your Telegraph column this week, Alison, you highlight poor old Leicester, the East Midlands city, the first to be put on the naughty step. Yeah, I mean, poor old Leicester, there they all are, getting ready for the weekend. Everybody's got their COVID protection stuff and suddenly it's Matt Hancock. You've been very bad. You're going to be locked down. And I think this is completely wrong. I really feel they say, oh, there's this dramatic surge in cases. I mean, what we're talking about, Liam, is going up from a very tiny number to a very small number. That's the fact. And I With my cynical hat on, I can't help thinking, is this the government making an example of one city as we're coming up to July the 4th, which is basically saying, you know, don't have too much of a good time. And when we had Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, he called it a necessary puncturing of the elation building up to July the 4th. I mean, have you ever heard of any more (laughs) finger wagging? Charisma bypass. Victorian (laughs) paterfamilias. You shall go to bed without supper, you naughty children. He said it by the fireplace as he was toying with his watch chain. 
<laughs> well, you know, all the all the poor folk in Blaby. I mean, I spent my teens just outside Leicester. I was a Saturday girl in Littlewoods in Leicester. And there's all the poor chaps and girls in Blaby dreaming of a blow dry and a pint on Saturday. And well, you can forget that, me duck, as they say locally. I mean, if there was ever evidence, an email or or something that the government was sort of, as you say, making an example of a particular city just as the lockdown starts to ease big time in order to keep everybody's mind focused on not going too mad. I mean, it would be incredibly controversial. I mean, on the other side of the coin, you could say it's just a a fact. Leicester has a big Asian community. A lot of Asian Brits are more susceptible. We know that they might be more susceptible to diabetes and other conditions that make you then in turn, unfortunately, more susceptible to COVID. So there may be reasons why Leicester does have a higher R value and is more susceptible to an outbreak anyway, no? Yes, but the prevalence of the virus in the city is 0.135% compared to 0.9% nationally. And if, as long as the NHS is coping, the number of cases, we've become fixated on the number of cases. Many of the people they've recorded this last week were people who were asymptomatic. So if you've got 900 cases, as long as they're not very, very sick and putting pressure on the hospitals, it doesn't matter. Let's just take France as an example of a sensible system. What they had was a traffic light system for their department, their regions. I love it when you do that. Sorry, I know, I know. Well, uh, obligatoire, obligatoire. Oh, yes. I, I can do, I can do département. Sorry, you were saying, you were saying. I was saying that in France, they didn't go on the number of cases. They didn't panic at the number of cases. They looked mm. at the death rate in a particular region and they looked at, is the intensive care under stress? Yes, okay, we're going up to amber light or we're going up to red light. Now, looking forward, Liam, what on earth is going to happen? We had a shopkeeper on the news in Leicester. She was crying. She'd spent money on PPE, on Perspex. She says, I've got the hand sanitizer ready to go. People are losing their livelihoods by the hour, by the hour. Big time. So we'll see what happens in Leicester. Another big story this week, of course, Boris Johnson unveiling his new Project Speed. No, that's not a reference to his undergraduate days and his extracurricular (laughs) activities. It's a reference to building a lot more infrastructure, levelling up the UK, and in particular, build, build, building more houses. Do you think it's going to happen? Well, I thought it was a good speech. I thought Boris is a lot happier pointing to the sunlit uplands than he is, you know, talking about taking our freedoms away. So it it was a good performance from him. What I thought was it was strange to choose this moment to announce a school building programme, you know, at a time when 85% of British children can't go to school. Get them back to school first. That's what I thought, get them back to school. We've also got this extraordinary threat that they won't even have the full curriculum in September. So most parents I know are tearing their hair out. And I just thought with the speech, I thought, you know, being able to change a retail building into domestic accommodation is not really high on the list of the things we're most worried about, Liam, is it? No, I I agree. I mean, I recently wrote a book on the house housing industry, as, as you know. Mm. I mean, I was quite underwhelmed by this speech, I must say. I know from my own investigations and consultations, the government is seriously considering reforming the way we do planning in this country. I think there's some merit in that. Many people listening may disagree. There'll be lots of concerns out there about the Greenbelt and so on. 
But if you really want to build more houses, what you have to do is you have to inject competition into the house building industry. Our top 10 house builders now build about 70% of their homes. They sit on the planning permissions when they get them. There are a million planning permissions outstanding. The small guys, the small builders who used to build the majority of our houses, who now build 10, 15% of them, they find it really hard to get a look in. And so the big guys are able to build slowly. Contrived scarcity is what I call it in order to keep prices high, lots of unaffordability and allowing developers to convert shoddy office buildings into rabbit hutch flats, you know, Mm. is not going to help. I mean, some local authorities in Croydon have actually banned that from happening because the developers have been doing such a ghastly Mm. job under these so-called permitted development rights. Looking at the economics that was in the speech, Boris was obviously inviting comparisons with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, wasn't he? Now, I don't know a huge amount about the New Deal. I knew that Roosevelt pumped enormous amounts of money into the American economy and built the Hoover Dam and so on. This didn't sound on anything like that scale to me. It wasn't on that scale. And of course, Franklin Delaney Roosevelt was a Democrat. His vision was very statist. And most economic historians think it was actually the Second World War that got us out of the the Depression of the early 30s rather than the New Deal. I mean, I would say, without wishing to sound too clever about it, I would say he's following the wrong Roosevelt because the Roosevelt who really shook up the American (laughs) economy and did good, I think, was Franklin Delaney Roosevelt's Republican cousin who came before him, Teddy Roosevelt, because it was in the early part of the 20th century that Teddy Roosevelt really broke up a lot of huge, big businesses that were basically controlling the economy, overseeing this model of sort of crony capitalism that wasn't doing consumers any good. So I think we need more Teddy Roosevelt and less Franklin Delaney Roosevelt. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! We also need to hear from your incredible Planet Normal guest this week, somebody who, in my view, really embodies planet normal. Yes, I was really pleased when Sean Bailey said he'd come on and talk to us. Sean, of course, now is the Conservative candidate for the 2021 London mayoral election. But his background is, as you say, pure planet normal. He was a youth worker for 20 years. He's been a member of the London Assembly more recently. I I, I first came across Sean's name back in 2005 I read this amazing pamphlet he'd written for the Centre for Policy Studies, which was called No Man's Land, How Britain's Inner City Young Are Being Failed. And it was astonishingly, because instead of the sort of usual patronising, rose-tinted Guardian comment page claptrap... Guff is the technical term. (laughs) Guff. Yes, guff. Well, here was this (laughs) 34-year-old black guy. And I always remember the essay began, I am Sean Bailey. 
I come from a black working class environment. I was born and brought up by my single mother on the North Kensington Estates. Where I live, the peer pressure to offend surrounds you. Crime is everywhere. There is a teenage drugs epidemic. Little mobility out of the area. But I am one of the lucky ones that I escaped my destiny. I put down to three things. Being part of a close-knit family, having a determined mother and being enrolled with the Army Cadet Force when I was 12 years old. This separated me from my peer group. One of my mum's proudest boasts was that I never brought the police to her house. Now, Liam, in the interview, Sean was at home in the conservatory and he was in the middle of homeschooling. So you'll probably hear a couple of the son and daughter, 10 and 12 years old, running around in the background. But I think that just gives you an idea of of his home life. And I put it to Sean that his mum would probably be pretty pleased. Not only had he not brought the police to her house, but he might actually end up being the London Police Commissioner. I'm still my mum's boy. I'm still, are you wearing a clean shirt? I'm still, what did you say on the news? What did you mean by that? I think she'd be proud. I used to be special advisor to the prime minister. And I remember when David Cameron offered me the job, I said, you know, I need to think about it, whatever. And I called my mum and I said to my mum, pack your bag, sister, we're going to number 10. (laughs) My my mum was was bursting with joy then. So let's see if I can do it for her again. So... We're speaking, Sean, at a very volatile time. Lockdown is easing. London streets have been full of illegal parties and protests. Most disturbingly, during the recent Black Lives Matter protests, we saw police officers running away from jeering demonstrators, which was a very worrying sight for a lot of people. What's gone wrong with the policing in our capital? I think there's two things. This has been a long time coming. That's the first thing I'd say. I could take you all the way back to the first riots we had and we wrung our hands a lot about what we asked the police or not to do. And I think the second thing is they've been shown no leadership. Ultimately, the police, rightly so, are fearful of being tried in the press, tried on the, on the evening news. And in order to take a strong stance, they need proper political cover. And that means leadership from City Hall. We all know that Sadiq Khan is the police commissioner for London and he's flopped and he's flipped, but he's never come out and backed the police. And now you're seeing them having to worry, second guess every move they make because he just won't give them clear direction. And this goes back to last summer when we had Extinction Rebellion. He invited them out onto the street because he he believes they're his political friends. The point I'm trying to make here is he chose a side. And when it came to Black Lives Matter, he also chose a side. And I've repeatedly said the only side that men can choose is a side of law and order, where you say to people, okay, you have a right to protest, but understand if you break the law, I will have to send the police out to defend Londoners, Londoners' property and our liberty to be able to walk around and do our business safely. And he hasn't done that. He reacted one way to the Black Lives Matter protests and a different way to when the far right came out. And what you've seen that said to people is he's picked a side, you may or may not be on it, and then you act in kind of that of that decision, don't you? And I think he's done us a real disservice by not saying the only side I'm on is law and order. Yeah. What's your fear for this long summer ahead then do you think with people coming out of lockdown i am seriously worried that we have a summer of discontent lockdown of course is a unique circumstance but a a disruptive summer is not but if you add to that the fuel that the mayor has now said we're going to have a review of statues and road names and all that will do is drive wedges between communities he's demonstrated he's not prepared to back the police to take a strong stance when needed So, of course, you'll see people come out and do as they please. The thing about public order, public safety, a lot of it is about the messages you send and pictures of closed police stations.
operations, police units in retreat mean that you embolden criminals. You saw it with the Extinction Rebellion. Mm. You've seen the Black Lives Matter protests go the wrong way in some cases as well. He needs to take a stance and stop tiptoeing around the issue. It was Sadiq Khan who had the statue of Winston Churchill boarded up and, you know, racist was graffitied on it. I know a lot of West Indians of your grandfather's generation were actually called Winston, weren't they, in honour of Churchill. I mean, how did you feel about that statue being boarded up? What's extraordinary is West Indians often have very English names, you know, Sean Bailey, Winston, Errol, those kind of things, William. And that's because of our going and long-term relationship with, with the country. So Winston Churchill, again, you're, you're talking to a black Londoner whose granddad fought in World War II for Britain. So you're talking about someone who's proud of their British links, etc. And so I've always carried that badge quite openly and quite proudly. I think what Sadiq Khan has done he has made it politically worrying for people to say which characters from history they support, which is wrong. Mm. And that's why you saw the boarding up of the Winston Churchill statue become a big deal. Now, any other mayor would have been able to board it up just so they didn't get graffitied on. When he boarded it up, it became symbolic of him trying to rewrite history. It became symbolic of him only supporting one half of the argument and picking a fight with the other half of the argument in order to make himself look good. And I think that's a problem because make no mistake, if we are to move forward from this as a society, we have to do it together. You're going to have to have complicated conversations with people who don't share your views. This is not the way to go about it. That is why I'm adamant when I'm mayor, I will be removing this ridiculous commission that we have to look at the statues and the names across London. Whitewashing history doesn't help black children. In fact, it just means we increase the chances of committing the same mistakes again and again and again. Our history is not perfect, but no history of any country is perfect. What we should do is look at those statues and say to young people, this is what that person said. The world's move on. Let's come together and see how we make sure this doesn't happen again. Rewriting history, I think, is a ridiculous thing. And I think Sadiq Khan has taken a big risk there, putting himself in as judge and jury around British history. I just feel like it has a big potential to backfire. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the terrible killing of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis has has unleashed a lot of pent-up anger and frustration about racism. Lots of young people, like my own kids, they feel the injustice very keenly. They've been out marching. Do you worry that a furious identity politics could end up damaging the anti-racism efforts or do you see some positives coming out of that? I see both. So there's no doubt that when you have protests that become riots, when you have a mayor that says he's going to single-handedly rewrite British history, what you do, you damage the cause. When you have Black Lives Matter's website, which talks about defunding the police, which talks about changing the economic system, you move away from what most black families are after. I, as a black family, what I'm after is the same treatment as everybody else, the same possibilities as everybody else. And I realise there's a complicated, sometimes difficult conversation to be had. I'm prepared to have that conversation. What you see here, I, I worry, is that it, it becomes a conversation where we punish people, where our goal is to make everybody who's not black feel like they're racist, which is clearly ridiculous and won't get us anywhere. That's what I worry about. If there's any positive, this is a historic moment. Mm. This is a moment where the Black Lives Matter protests can be used to drive real change. And I always make the point, this is not a black issue. This is a challenge about what it is to be British. We hold our heads high internationally because we are seen as fair-minded people. Let's show once again we really are. 
Remember, nobody on the side of justice is asking for extra for black people. We're just asking for the same. And if we can have that conversation without whitewashing history, without falling to political correctness, I think we can actually move the country forward. So Keir Starmer is now saying that the that the BLM aim of defunding the police is nonsense. Was Starmer's original unquestioning support for BLM? Do you think that was an error? What that showed for Keir Starmer is the bandwagon. The Labour Party is, is well known for having lots of young support. And therefore, I know we'll bandwagon ourselves to this and we, we'll keep our young support jamboree going. We'll keep, be able to say to the black community, only we're interested in your future, which is clearly wrong. If they'd taken one moment to investigate a little bit of what Black Lives Matter as an organisation, as opposed to a movement, was after they'd have known they couldn't support them. They're talking about defunding the police. That's ridiculous. I had a conversation today with a young black man who said, yeah, 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 why don't we do that? And I said, who are the biggest victims of crime in London? That's us. Without any police force, we're doomed. What are you talking about? He's like, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of it that way. But Keir Starmer should have done. He should have thought of it that way. We rely on on our position to think things through carefully. So I think it's a shame that they jumped on a bandwagon before they actually got to the bottom of what black communities want and need. But there were plenty, weren't there, of young British people, black and white. I mean, I found it, you know, obviously it was disturbing, but there were some moving aspects to it. Did you, as a black man, did you feel there are people in this society who care about racism? I mean, did you did you feel that was quite touching in a way? I think it goes beyond touching. It was real. So I saw people who are a million miles away from the black community think, you know what, I finally get it, or at least I'm going to try to get it. That's a massive step. And that's why I use the word, this is a historic moment to bring people together. Because as much as people talk to you about racism today, and it is bad, it, 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 mm. it, it, every black person could give you some, some, some pretty horrific tale, it is significantly better than it has been. And why that is an important point to make, because if we don't believe that we can improve, why bother? It's important that we look at the fact that we have improved. I remember as a young boy spending a lot of my time running away from the local NF. Really? Yeah. I used to live at the bottom of Wormwood Scrubs for a long time. And my friend Gordon and his his family, they lived at the top. And to get to him, you kind of had to go through the estate. And that was dodging the NF. But I remember Gordon and his brother being so brave about it because once you'd sort of fest that you had a black friend you were all in trouble but the fact that those two white boys were so brave about it made me think well we have allies in this we're not alone when you saw senior police officers write a letter and say we will come out in support of of your search for justice we'll look at our own business around death in custodies around how black people are treated all of that's really really powerful stuff what i didn't appreciate is the labor party then trying to say only they are allowed to talk about racism you saw what they tried to do to Pretty Patel, which I thought was was actually misguided and disgusting. I'm a black parent. I have children whose future I want to secure. And I don't appreciate it being linked to, you know, left-wing politics around changing the economic system. That's ridiculous to me. You talked about that Pretty Patel thing. I mean, all those Labour MPs wrote a letter to her, didn't they, saying that she was gaslighting them by talking about her own experience of racial abuse. I mean, Do you get, Sean, that kind of Uncle Tom stuff from people that you're the wrong kind of brown person if you're a conservative? Oh, my gosh, I could tell you 101 stories. I mean, only last week I had it from both ends. So on one end, I'm an Uncle Tom, and then I had another letter telling me I should go back to my mud hut. I mean, (laughs) if if I wasn't secure in my Britishness, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. (laughs) I I suppose it goes like this. That's the Labour Party's trick. People often say to me, look, 
to most black people, I look authentic. I'm a Londoner. I was born and raised here. I come from a poor family. I've walked the walk or whatever, however people say that. So they say, so how comes you're conservative? And I say, do you know the first thing that made me feel like I could be a conservative? The fact that the left were telling me I could see myself as nothing other than black. Mm. The fact that the left were telling me that if I do that, I'm not one of them. Well, straight away, someone's trying to control me. I've got an issue with that. Black people should be able to vote any way they like. But the point is, if you're a young black person, they've made it a real leap of bravery to come out against their politics. And that's a deliberate tactic. And that's what makes me so angry. This was a few years ago now. I bumped into a Rasta man on a bus that has a big, like you see him around the area. You know, and he'd always talk about black history and that kind of stuff. And you see him all the time. And he said to me, I can't believe you're sure you've joined the Tory party. What are you doing? And we had a long <laughs> conversation. But he said these immortal words to me. He said, it's good that you joined the Tory party. I said, why is that? And he said, because all of the trials and tribulation that, that we've been through as a community is to give our children the right to do anything they like. And he said, the fact that you feel like the next step for the community, at least as far as you see it, is to be able to join the Tory party is a good thing. It makes some of the battles we've had, it looks like we're winning them. Yeah. So the former Surrey Police and Crime Commissioner, Kevin Hurley, pointed out recently that the biggest danger to young black males is young black males when we're talking about, you know, knife crime. And Kevin says that stop and search is largely about helping the black community. What's your position on stop and search? I think to some extent he's right. I think we need to have a a nuanced conversation about it because if you go just the policing route, there's an awful lot of time and energy spent on stop and search. Does it actually deliver any results from policing? There's a dubious link there. The other part of it as well, stop and search is not the only thing that happens. The police have many, many more things that they can be doing. But we do have to have stop and search. So what I've pledged to do when I become mayor is have a thing called scan and search. So it's a non-invasive way of checking people for weapons and the like. It means that we can do it at much greater numbers with a lower level of hassle. But also as well, the police have to interact with communities. That's why I want a record amount of police so we can go back to patrolling model. But the idea that stop and search can disappear is, is ridiculous. We're going to have to use it. And his statement that black boys are more under pressure by black boys is an uncomfortable truth that we'll have to confront. And that, again, is why I think Sadiq Khan has been so utterly useless. He will not confront the real facts of what's going on in the street. So, of course, we've had two years of record levels of homicide in London because he will not confront the truth. It's an uncomfortable truth, but we won't solve it unless we confront it. Can you be honest with me? How easy would it have been for the young Sean Bailey to end up in jail? I mean... Wow. If I mean, if, if you look at the young people I worked with who all came from where I came from initially, or the people I grew up with, super easy. I think in some ways it's easier to ask how many of us didn't get involved criminally as opposed to how many of us did. Mm. It was easy to do. There was a lot of there was a lot of criminal temptation around us. And of course, when you're in that environment, it's cool. It's not only easy, you get money, it's cool. You're well known, you know people, you're respected. So there's lots of draw in the crime. I think the challenge for for young, black and white, poor kids in general is developing a resilience to what's going on around you that you shouldn't be involved in and then a confidence to pursue the opportunities that the country and your local environment can provide. And that's a challenge, be you black or white, if you're poor. If you're black, of course, it has some extra dimensions, I'd probably argue. But the point is, it is very easy to slip into something that you shouldn't be involved in. I I, I credit my avoidance of crime, my mum army cadets, all of those things, because they gave me a a resilience and a a can-do attitude. 
Because if you don't have that, wow, you are really fighting an uphill battle. Yeah. You said on Armed Forces Day last week, outside politics, I'm very proud to serve as an honorary colonel of the Royal Fusiliers with responsibility for cadets. I remember all those years ago, you talked about the Army Cadet Force and some men who made a real difference. Can you can you tell me about that? I mean, it, why it was so important to me, I met men who were tough in for what me was a non-traditional way. It wasn't about who you could beat up. It was about providing for people. It was about training people and teaching people. And what you find with military people, they are very focused and, and very sure of themselves much of the time. And that was really important to me because I was in an environment and I needed individuals to challenge that. And I remember one day that there was a guy, he was a corporal in the Paris because my unit was linked to Tempara. And one of the cadets said to him, who's the toughest man in the world? And he said, the toughest man in the world goes to work every day, comes home and feeds his children. Mm. And I tell you what, that really stuck with me. I was like, wow, that, wow. And that stuck with me. And I had an officer called, he he was captain at the time, he's now Colonel Conley. He believed in me. And I cannot tell you, every time I did bad, he had this disappointed look on his face. Mm. And I just wanted to avoid that disappointed look. And when I did well, I remember one day he said to me, I'm not going to reward you for doing the right thing. The reward should be the fact that you're doing the right thing. And, and again, that, that stuck with me. The Conservative Party has changed. We look at the front bench and, you know, we see people from diverse backgrounds. But do you feel they've got your back, Sean, really? Do you, I mean, there's still snobbery and, you know, you come across it, don't you? Have you ever felt that? Let's separate this out. Has the party changed? Of course it's changed, if only because people of the society's changed. Has it changed enough? You could always argue no. But what frustrates me is the idea that it's only the Conservative Party that needs to change. Let's look at the Labour Party. When you speak to people of a generation above me who are black, they tell you one of the most racist situations they had to deal with was the unions. And the Labour Party is based on those unions. So they've got a question to answer. Of course, we've all seen the madness with anti-Semitism and how deeply ingrained that is in Labour Party as well. So for me, all parties need to change and, and progress towards this thing of justice, of equality uh, around race. I think that's really important that we say that all parties have. For me... My journey through the Conservative Party has largely been pretty sweet and and devoid of the whole black-white race issue. But snobs exist everywhere. And have I come across them? Of course I have. But part of my role in the world is to face people down like that. That's how I see it, you know. If if you do vanguard and if if you're the first, you need to make that a positive experience. And that means taking people on. And I've always been happy to take people on around these issues. Well, you were a really good gymnast as a kid, weren't you? So you can always do like a double backflip over some of these old Tufton Buftons, can't you? I can barely touch my toes these days. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it. So looking at the fu- looking at the funding, going back to Sadiq Khan again, just recently this shocking announcement that going to be cuts to the police of 110 million. 290 million cut from transport because of this feared 493 million collapse in City Hall's income due to the coronavirus. If you were mayor, what would you be doing about that? I think I want to look at this in past, present and future. So in the past, Sadiq Khan utterly destroyed the finances of TfL and City Hall. He had a £500 million increase in City Hall spending. He's been bailed out twice for TfL, once for Crossrail, £3.6 billion, and now an additional £1.9 billion. 
that's the past. The present situation is this. London absolutely has suffered a shock to his income, a serious shock, and we need to make those changes. But the point is, Sadiq Khan has issued those to the government as a challenge. He's basically said, if you don't do this, I'll have to do that. They're fully aware his, his income has gone down. And to do it in this way, I think he's playing politics and he's trying to cover up his past of very, very poor financial management. And the future part of this is this. We need a mayor that can bargain with, with Whitehall. We need a mayor that can get things out of them, that can strike a deal. If you have a mayor that the government can't trust, how is he going to get the best deal for us? It's utterly ridiculous. And someone tried to say to me the other day, so that's just the Tories playing politics. I said, no, it ain't. Let me demonstrate this to you. Sadiq Khan whined and whined and whined to be let into Cobra meetings. So Boris Johnson relented and let him in. What's the first thing Sadiq Khan did? He came out to the press and divulged secret information that could have caused a panic. The information was that schools would potentially close. It could have caused a panic. This is the level of misbehaviour that the government have to deal with. So why would they give him money? On top of that, the last time they bailed him out, he told him off. They gave him £3.6 billion for TFRL. He told him off, forgetting that it's entirely his fault that they needed the money in the first place. We need a mayor that can bargain properly with the government to make sure that London prospers in the future. So we've had Boris talking about building, building, building. London had this huge amount of money to build affordable homes. I think it was £4.82 billion to build over 90,000 affordable homes. Have we, have we got any of those? No. What, this is, again, this is about financial management. When you speak to people who are outside politics, you're talking millions of billions. Of course, it has no context to them. So I'll put it to you like this. Sadiq Khan had the cheek to ask for more money for social housing. Robert Jenrick turned around to him and said, but you haven't even spent half of what we've already given you, which, by the way, was a record amount of money, £4.82 billion. The point is this, you've got to run London properly so we can maximise outcomes, particularly for the poorest Londoners. And the mayor has not taken responsibility for that. He spent his whole time pointing fingers at other people and not getting anything done. Now, you're married to Ellie, a teacher, mm. and you've got two children. I know you said you were sitting in your conservatory surrounded by homeschooling rubbish. Yes. You said something really striking. You said that having mixed race children had given Ellie a better idea of how racism affects your life. and People react to skin colour all the time. And you said this thing that really shocked me. You said that people assume that Ellie is a single mother because she has mixed race children. What does that mean? I mean, that... Again, that's judgment, isn't it? I, I've just spoken to a group of young people and one of them said, why do all people stereotype black people? And I said, they don't, but, you know, a significant number of do to make it a problem. And that story reminds me of that, isn't it? That's how we are viewed. And there's, there's a responsibility for the black community to change that. And there's also a personal responsibility for people to give you a chance. And... My wife's particular journey is, my wife hasn't got a racist bone in her body, never even crossed her mind. But my wife was, was, was shocked. You know, all of a sudden she's got black children and now she's got a different orientation to racism and she could see it more clearly because she's feeling it through her children. And it's my wife who constantly reminds me, you must remind people, it's not just good enough to not be racist, but people got to actively work against it. And I think my wife's experience has brought that home to me again. It did make me laugh that you said when you had your first date with her, the car broke down and you couldn't go home because it was your auntie's house. So you treated Ellie to a Muller corner. So from that, 
from that dizzying romantic height, I'm quite surprised she's she's agreed to be Mrs. Bailey. Well done, Sean. Can I just say, Muller's corners at the time are very expensive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. And we sat in the car and, and I, I played her my best mixtape at the time. And she seemed to really appreciate that. <laughs> well, you must have done something right. I'm going to finally, Planet Normal is going to give you a magic wand to wave for your children and for all the other children in London. What would improve things for kids from your background? What, what's the thing you'd give them? Great public safety, decent place to live, high levels of education, love and family. Oh, Sean, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And, and you wish well. you very, very well. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Wow. Well, I found that really moving, Alison. Um, Lovely guy. I've met Sean Bailey over the years. He's now almost 50, isn't he? I've always thought he was a plausible candidate for London mayor, but I really think that was a breakthrough moment, that interview. I'd certainly say he's now a strong candidate. Very, very impressive. I was very impressed. And I think there was some, you know, unpleasant talk about the Tories dropping him as the candidate and wheeling in Sajid Javid and... I think what he proved there was his grasp of the challenges. I think he makes a very, very powerful point about Sadiq Khan. He chose a side and that's a disaster for law and order. And and Sean points that out and how powerful to say he's worried about a summer of discontent, Liam. The bit that really struck home with me were his stories of interracial strong childhood friendships and and loyal bonds. Mm. I mean, I I experienced that. I grew up very close to Sean Bailey, just down the road, in fact. A lot of racism around, not just towards black and Asians, but also towards my community, if you like, the London Irish community. And I must say, when I've gone on panels, sometimes on television and talked about this kind of stuff, you know, stressing that there's now far, far less racism than there was. Britain is one of the most tolerant societies mm. in the world. You wouldn't know it from listening to the TV news lately. I've often had groups of other ethnic minorities chide me for saying that there's been improvement. But as Sean Bailey said, and I thought it was absolutely right, of course we've got to point mm. out the improvement, mm. quotes, because if you don't believe we can improve, why bother? I thought that was an absolute slam dunk moment. Of course, we have to say that there are problems. Of course, we have to say that there is racism still in the UK. But we also have to say to bring confidence and engender further improvement that we're not doing too badly most of the time. No. And also, as he said, how dare they say you can't be a black person and vote conservative? There's that absolute knee-jerk tendency isn't there on the left that you're a sellout well actually no conservatives have picked him to be the candidate for london mayor that says something to all the shawns out there doesn't it i mean something he also said liam which was very strong i think was that he just doesn't agree with this sort of inquiry into statues he wants to live in the present and the future not go around tearing down britain's history and something we've seen in the last week we've had justin welby the archbishop of canterbury not just saying that the west needed to question whether christ was a white man in in christian imagery which is fair enough but he went on to say that the statues in canterbury cathedral would be under review on the back of the black lives matter campaign and 
this really exercises me, Liam, is because I think Archbishop Welby, you know, Christianity is supposed to be the opposite of the cancel culture, which we see attacking. Tolerance. (laughs) Wisdom. Forgiveness. Whatever a person said or done, there's always forgiveness and love. And as far as I'm concerned, Archbishop Welby should not be going after statues in Canterbury. He should take a moral lead and say ostracising and hounding people because they don't agree with you is wrong. Absolutely right and daubing dickens was a racist i mean charles dickens this i mean a journalist turned novelist who arguably did more to bring about social reform in the uk practically than any other writer of the 19th century (laughs) completely mad there you are now seeing a, a, a retreat we've talked about this in previous planet normals but you've now got as you said to sean bailey keir starmer retreating from the Black Lives Matter movement, which has a point on many things, but in many cases is also very, very divisive, as as Sean Bailey said. You've also got the Premier League now saying that the footballing community Mm. don't see Black Lives Matter as a political movement. I mean, anyone knew this weeks ago. Just read their website. These people want to, quote, defund the police. Yes. Want to, you know, dismantle capitalism. (laughs) This this is not going to do anyone any good. Let's finish with some messages from readers and Planet Normal listeners. The wonderful wave of childhood elf and safety stories from the (laughs) 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s has continued, Alison. What's the latest? Got a lovely one. Jenny Allen from um, West Yorkshire. My husband and I listen to your wonderful podcast and your health and safety horror stories have us falling off the settee with laughter. I remember, says Jenny, going to a circus in my hometown and watching as a performer threw knives at his glamorous female sidekick back home and inspired I raided the cutlery drawer <laughs> and stood my little brother against the shed door. How I missed him with my <laughs> mum's Bakelite knives, I will never know. Great sport but my little brother possibly scarred for life. He reads The Guardian. Well, childhood trauma can do that to you, Liam. There's so many of them. I mean, they're absolutely brilliant. I said last week that we went to scout camp in the back of a furniture lorry. Keith Warman told me about his scout experience. When he was in a scout troop, they went to the County Jamboree at Western Super Mary in 1961. We travelled along with all our kit in the back of an open top lorry (laughs) supplied by the local boot and shoe company in Street Somerset. And Keith sent to us as an attachment to the email a fabulous press cutting of lads from the Second Street Scout Troop in that open top lorry. Happy days. Yeah, lovely, lovely photograph. Just to keep the theme of people being able to laugh at ludicrous things, we've had quite a lot of reaction to the Leicester lockdown. Chris said he was writing to Planet Normal from the Leicester military occupation zone and and he... (laughs) He sent me a picture of Leicester Cathedral. Underneath was a caption, Welcome to Leicester, historic city, twinned with Wuhan. (laughs) And also, this is brilliant. This is from Pav from Leicester, suggesting the rallying cry, Je suis Leicester, or Ich bin ein Leicesterer. So the people people are rising up against their Matt Hancock (laughs) and the, uh, the oppressors. Ich bin ein Berliner, said JFK, which actually translated to I am a jelly donut. (laughs) So that's it. Voyage number six to Planet Normal. Mission complete. And if you want to comment on anything we've said or anything in the news over the coming days, do write to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. 
Planet Normal is free to listen to and you can do so on the Telegraph website or by subscribing on your podcast app. Now, subscribing to the podcast on an app is different to being a subscriber to the Telegraph. There has been some confusion about this. If you subscribe to the show on a podcast app, all it means is that it will automatically load the latest episode for you when we release a new one. And I'm told by my own mother that that works. If you'd like to listen to Planet Normal on a smartphone or a tablet and you're not sure how to subscribe to it on the app, please email us because the magical Louisa Hooray. will sort it out for you. Hooray. Planet Normal at telegraph.co.uk and we will banish your difficulties. Well said. And if you're not already a subscriber to the Telegraph itself, as a Planet Normal fan, you can get your first 30 days free and that gives you access to all the Telegraph's news services, including Alison's brilliant column and my weekly column. You can do that at telegraph.co.uk forward slash normal. And we'll put that link in the show notes too. And thank you so much, as always, for your positive ratings and reviews. I'm reading them and they're so good. I think Liam's been writing them, but he, he I thought tells you were me, writing them. <laughs> I, I mean, they're saying things that I would definitely write. So I'm thrilled. Do keep them coming because they really help other listeners to find us. I particularly enjoyed this review from a listener who goes by the name of Burger Bin. Thank you. At last, something to listen to that's not infected by the woke virus, said Mr. or Mrs. Bin. <laughs> Refreshing. Great interviews and exchanges of opinions. So as we leave Planet Normal and speed back to our mad, mad world, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampitt, our editor, Theo Leludis, and to The Telegraph, which lets us get away with thinking and speaking like normal people. <laughs> so until next Thursday, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>